0: Normally, uh, when we teach through the Bible here at Bencham, we would take a passage of scripture and we would read through it and then comment on it and think about what that passage teaches us. Uh, what I'm doing is trying to put together the, the big teachings of the Bible from across different passages to see what the Bible says about core issues of the Christian faith, the things that Christians really ought to know and really ought to believe, and this is known more formally as systematic theology. And we started the, the series by thinking about the idea of revelation. We can only know God if God reveals himself to us and says something to us. And so we thought about how the Bible is our source book there. It's our supreme source of authority because that's where we hear God speaking to us. And we can only know anything about God as if he actually communicates to us. And then we thought about... The God who communicates Himself to us in Scripture, and what does He say about Himself? And thought about how God reveals Himself as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who has both incommunicable attributes, things about God that cannot be shared with us, such as God is everywhere at all times, uh, He knows everything that there is, and those cannot be shared with us. But equally so, there's communicable attributes like God's love and God's justice. Things that he expects us to actually embody in our lives as well. And so we thought about God from those two different angles. But tonight I want to think about what the Bible says about the Son of God. Uh, Think about Jesus Christ himself and what the Bible says about him. And this is known with the technical term, as you see in the slides, Christology. It just means the study of Christ and it looks then at the person of Christ who is he and what has he done and rather than try and cram too much in tonight i've thought very briefly about who Christ is tonight and then in my next session i'll talk about what Christ has actually done but they overlap a little bit and so we'll think a bit about that i must stress that what i'm going to say is very cursory very brief at times i'll dip into things in a little bit of detail uh, but there's much more that could be explored. Um, and I just want to put together a bit of a landscape of the Christian faith so we get a broad overview of what's going on. Well, the reason why then we turn to think about the person of Christ, the Lord Jesus, is because he's the one who reveals God to us. Um, <coughs> I can get my slides to work. There they go, yeah. Uh, so uh, Jesus Christ is the one who reveals God To us. Um, And he is thus at the heart of all Christian worship and doctrine and devotion. John, he says at the start of his gospel, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the bosom of the Father, in closest relationship with the Father, He has made him known. And this stands at the very centre of what we believe as Christians, that we know God precisely because Jesus Christ has made him known to us. And so we call ourselves Christians because we follow after Christ, the one who we believe is the one who reveals God directly to us. But I want to think... um, about one passage of scripture in particular, uh, and I'm going to read through it. I'm going to think about some of the claims that it makes, and then we'll think about some of those implications in more detail. So we're going to turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 1. I've got it on the slide behind me if you want to follow along in the NIV, but if you've got your own Bible, feel free to read along. So it's Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm only going to read the first nine verses here. And the word of the Lord says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. And again when God brings his firstborn into the world he says let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun he says your throne O God will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And this, then, is one of the most beautiful descriptions about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we've got in the New Testament. It's so packed with truth about who he is that it's worth unpicking in a little bit more detail about what it actually says here. And it tells us that for a long time in ancient history, God was preparing his people By speaking to them through the prophets. And he spoke to them at various times and in various different ways. Preparing them for the one who was going to come. Who was going to set everything right. Who was going to redeem fallen humanity. And so the time came when at last God came in the person of his own son. And that's what we read in verse 2. Where it says in these last days... He has spoken to us in a son. Not just an angel, not in a prophet, but in his son. And the writer he calls them the last days, because they are the the days of fulfillment that everything else was, was pointing up to. All that the prophets were saying, all that everybody was saying leading up to this time of fulfillment. The last days has come to completion when the, the one comes who brings everything to fulfillment. When, when this one comes who fulfills all of God's promises, it's the last days because everything comes to its climax. And so in these last days, God speaks to us, not in a prophet, not even in an angel, but in his own son And the writer, he describes for us here how this this son, he is the one who made all things. He made the universe. He is not only the one who made everything, but he's the one who is going to receive everything. He is the heir of all things and all things belong to him and are going to be given to him. And so when we read about him here, what we discover is that he's not just some emanation from God, he's not some lower deity. He is God Himself. And that's why verse 3 says that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is, he mirrors God's perfectly God perfectly. He's the exact imprint of God. Exactly who God is, that's who we see in Jesus Christ. And all the Father in his glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. And to confirm the point that he is fully God, we read that he sustains all things by his powerful word. So not only does the Lord Jesus Christ create everything, not only does he own everything, but everything continues in existence because Jesus Christ says it is to continue That's his power, that's his greatness. And so, we discover one who is great and magnificent. And yet, we discover that he is the one who came into the world as a human being and he spoke to us. He walked amongst us. People saw him. People touched him. People hugged him. People kissed him. People even beat him people crucified him and kneeled him to a cross. And so he died, his body was laid in a tomb, and he rose in a body from the grave and descended in a body into the very presence of God itself. And so here what we have to do is wrestle with this tension between this revelation of the Son of God as the one who is both Fully God, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, the one for whom all things exist, and yet the one who is fully human as well. And so Paul writes to Timothy that he appeared in the flesh. And so we've got to ask ourselves the question, how can he be both God and human at the same time? Because to some extent, these ideas... Stand in tension with one another. Because how can the infinite God also be a finite human being? How can the God who knows everything become a human being who learns how to read and write? How can the God who controls all things also be the one who is tired and who falls asleep in a boat. And so how can he be both God and human at the same time? The early Christians, they affirmed both of these things. They said that Jesus Christ was both fully God and fully man. But it was only in later centuries, in the second and third centuries, that they actually began to thrash that out in a bit more detail. And in many ways, one of the ways in which that happened was because people started saying things that were wrong, and as Christians pushed back against those ideas, they became to they came to a clearer articulation of what exactly it meant for Jesus Christ to be both fully God and fully man at the same time and so there were various unsatisfactory ideas that were proposed in the early centuries and have continued to be proposed, and some newer ideas that have been floated in in the present day. One of the earliest ideas that's actually dealt with in the Bible, in, in the letter that John wrote, 1 John, is an idea which is known as docetism. It's from a Greek word which just means to look like. These people suggested that Well, Jesus Christ, he was fully God, so they got that right. But they didn't know how to fit together that he was both God and man. So they said, well, he just looked like a human being. And so, you know, he he wasn't fully human in many ways. And so the problem here is that if you've got someone who just looks like a human being, even though he might be fully God... He still can't do what we need for us. What we need as sinful human beings is a human being who can represent us before God. One who can actually suffer in our place on the cross. And if you're not a human being, then of course you can't really suffer. And so we need a human being who can actually suffer and die for us on the cross in order to rescue us from our sentence of death. And so while it might seem at first glance that this is a good idea, that, you know, he was fully God but just looked like a human being, it quickly unravels as we discover, well, actually, if he's not fully human, then he can't save us. It's just not good enough. Well, another view was kind of the opposite of that, Arianism. That was the idea proposed by a chap called Arius, and he said that Jesus wasn't fully God. And so it stressed that that Jesus was a, a full human being, But it's said that while he was a great creature, um, was even actually the one that was kind of like the one who created the physical universe. He himself was still a created being. And so they said that he had limitations in many ways, just like like we do. And so they emphasised that he was human like us, but really didn't have any concept that he was God himself. And again... This is a problem, isn't it? Because if in Jesus Christ we encounter one who isn't fully God, then how can he show us God? How can he reveal God to us? Well, he might be able to tell us some things, but how how would he then differ from a prophet? How would he differ from an angel? Not really. What we need is someone who can come to us and fully reveal God to us. And so when we read in the book of Hebrews, for example, we discover that that the the Son is the exact representation of God, the exact imprint of God. So when we look at Jesus Christ, we don't see somebody different from God. We see God himself. Well, there's another couple of views, and they get increasingly more subtle, because they think, well, okay, if we avoid those two errors, how can we be a little bit more uh, subtle in the way we put these things together? And so Apollinarianism... Following a chap called Apollinarius, said that yes, he was he was fully God, but not fully human insofar as he didn't have a human soul or a human mind. And so what happened in the incarnation, that is, when God entered into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, was that there was a human body, but everything else was God. But here again we've got the same kind of problem because if he's not fully human then he's not truly human and if he's not truly human then he can't properly stand in our place before God and he certainly can't really understand us if he never had a human mind. And so I'm going to come back to that idea. But more recently an idea which crops up again and again is the idea that the Son of God entering into the world set aside certain attributes of his deity. So we feel the tension between God being omnipresent in everywhere and Jesus Christ being at one place in one time. And so some people in this view, canoticism, They suggest that Jesus set aside certain things like his omnipresence or his knowledge of all things so that he trims down, he he shaves off bits of his deity in order to fit himself into humanity. Uh, And they would draw that from Philippians chapter 2, for example. Um, But this is actually really problematic because, because if you shave off bits of God, then you're left with something which isn't fully God. Uh, and that would then mean that Jesus Christ wasn't fully God. He can't just set aside bits of deity as if deity is a kind of like Lego creation that you can just take bits off and just reconfigure it the way you want. Because remember at previous time we stressed that God is one simple undivided being. He cannot be chopped up into parts. And so the, the person of Jesus Christ is fully God. And so we can't chop bits off God, as it were. So, as you can see, there have been a number of different false attempts to try to put together what it means for Jesus Christ to be God and man. Uh, And some of them have gone really quite wrong. So, how can we put them together in a way that emphasises that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man? Well, first of all, we have to emphasize that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is fully and eternally God, nothing less. He is absolutely, unqualifiedly God himself. So not less than God, not other than God, he is God. But second then, we have to say that when he entered into the world, he Added something to himself, he didn't change, he added humanity to himself and humbles himself by taking on humanity. So, a lot of people have struggled over this idea in Philippians 2 that Christ humbled himself, or the text literally says that Christ emptied himself. And they ask the question well, what did he empty himself of? And they try to think about some, some attribute of deity they might have given up. But really that's not the point. Because the point is he empties himself of his full display of divine glory. By adding humanity to himself. Which veils his full glory. And so we sing often at Christmas time. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Heal the incarnate deity. And so the one that we meet in Jesus Christ, is God himself having added human flesh to himself, human nature to himself. So it's not like he takes away something from himself to become man, he adds something to himself in order to become human. And he adds to himself a nature that is limited, a nature that can only be in one place at one time that grows in knowledge and understanding, that can suffer, that can die. And so we see the creator adding to himself a creaturely nature so that he can actually live amongst us. Thirdly, we have to insist that when God the Son added human nature to himself, he remains one person. It's not like there's one person, Jesus, who was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary and God the Son who come together so that they somehow meld together and become two people or two people joined in in one body. But he's one person. The one person is the Son of God himself. And we say then that, that this person who was human, was the Son of God. Now the fourth thing that we have to say is that he remains fully God and retains all the attributes of his deity and adds to himself all the attributes of humanity. So he doesn't have a reduced deity, nor does he have a reduced humanity. He is fully human. And so we've got to say that Jesus Christ has a divine nature, and a human nature both joined in one person. And the last point I want to stress, and don't worry, I'm going to put these together and think about why this is helpful in a second. The last point that I want to stress is that whatever we say applies to a nature of Christ, applies to the person of Christ. And if that sounds technical, let me give you an example. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we can't say that his divine nature died because as God he cannot die, but nor is it particularly helpful to say that his human nature died because natures don't die. The point is that joining human nature and divine nature together in one person means that whatever we say about the natures is true of the person, so that we say that on the cross, the Son of God died. The person died. Not a nature, not a bit of him. He died. And so when we talk about the experiences of the Lord Jesus, it's helpful to say that those experiences are the experiences of a person, not something within that person. And when we keep that in mind, then this will be very helpful for us. Um, the reason why, then, I think it's so helpful is because it helps to understand various passages of scripture which would otherwise be confusing. And the reason why I think thinking systematically about the Bible, even though it might be a bit of hard work, is because it then lays the groundwork, it gives us the understanding, the framework that we need in order to read the Bible and say, this is how it works, this is how it fits together. Otherwise, we can end up coming to false conclusions. Take John chapter 1 verse 47 for example. The Lord Jesus, he's meeting Nathaniel, one of the disciples, for the first time. Neither Jesus nor Nathanael had actually met before. But when they meet each other, Jesus, he claims to know that Nathanael is actually a true Israelite in whom is no deceit. He's an honest, faithful Israelite. Nathanael, he's really puzzled by this. How does Jesus know anything about him? And Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. He's not saying that he had binoculars or something or he's spying on him or something. He's saying that he knows Nathaniel. He knows what his character's like. He's got insight into Nathaniel's private life. And how does he know that? Well, it's because the one that Nathaniel meets is God himself. And he knows everything. And so it's helpful to see here that at points like this, we see that Jesus has understanding that goes beyond human understanding. It's helpful in other passages too. So for example, when we come towards the end of the Lord Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find him in prayer in Matthew 26. And he prays, My Father, if it is possible, May this cup be taken from me. This cup of suffering that he's going to experience when he goes to the cross and dies. And then he says, yet yeah, not as I will, but as you will. This is a problem. Because the Son of God shares the single divine will with the Father. So previously we established that because God can't be chopped up into parts, they share all that's true of the deity. So they share one single will, one thing, everything that they want, they want together. So how is it now at this point in Jesus' life he says that there's something that he wants that's different to what the Father wants? The answer here, of course, is that Jesus has two wills. He's got his divine will that he shares with the Father. But he also has a human will. And as a human being, there are things that instinctively he does not want. Human beings don't want to suffer. If you want to suffer, that's not normal. And so Jesus Christ, being fully human, you see here that he's not defying God's will. He's bringing his will into conformity with the Father's will and saying, not my will, but but yours be done. But at the same time, there's something instinctively in him that recoils from going to the cross. What else would we expect if he's fully human? Because he he sees all the horror that lies ahead of him. He sees the suffering that he's going to have to undergo. And it would be less than fully human if he didn't recoil from it and say, if there's any way out of this, let that happen. But not what I want, what you want, Father. And so by understanding that the person of Christ has both a divine will and a human will seeks to make sense of those passages of scripture where the Lord Jesus here expresses a will which is distinct from the divine will. But there's one more instance worth reflecting on. When Jesus is hanging on the cross in his final hours, when he's almost at the very end of his life, he cries out, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that cry is heart-wrenching. Because even if we don't fully understand what it means, it's a terrible thing for him to cry out. There's so much sorrow that's loaded into it. And we have to ask ourselves then, what does it mean? Some preachers, well-meaning preachers, and probably even myself at some points, have said something to the effect of well, on the cross the Trinity itself is rent asunder God himself is divided but we've already thought about that we know that God can't be divided You can't chop God up God is God, is God a single divine being so what's happening at the cross? why does he say, my God, my God why have you forsaken me? Here we have to understand that, that the Son is speaking with reference to his human experiences. Through his human nature, he is experiencing a separation from God that he had never experienced before. In his divine nature, he couldn't experience that. But in his human nature, he could experience that. And he experienced that abandonment there upon the cross but because the, we would say that the person suffered, the person experienced abandonment, and we don't talk about nature suffering or nature's dying, then it's correct for us to say that the Son of God here is abandoned by the Father, as long as we don't understand by that that God himself is separated. That doesn't happen. It's through his human nature that he experiences this. And this understanding then helps to make sense of the person of the Lord Jesus. Because unless you have the category to understand both human and divine, experiencing both in one person, then there's going to be passages of scripture that you'll scratch your head over and just not have a clue what to do with. But when you understand that, it's not that we suddenly understand the mysteries of how the two fit together. But we understand that they do fit together. And we can't, we can't diminish any one of them. Now, I think having this framework helps us understand scripture. But it does more than that. It gives us a cause for worship. And in the last five minutes or so, I want to think about why it's so important that we have one who is both fully God And fully man. And it's helpful then to imagine what it would be like if Jesus wasn't fully God. Imagine what it would be like. Imagine that man who was lowered through the roof uh, on his bed. He was paralysed. He couldn't walk. And Jesus sees him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's shocked because they know that only God can forgive sins. But if he wasn't God, then every time he spoke to somebody telling them that their sins were forgiven, it didn't mean anything. Nor would he be able to say to us that our sins are forgiven. He couldn't promise something like that unless he was fully God. Or imagine what it would be like to try to know God if if Jesus wasn't fully God. John 14, of course, the Lord Jesus says that he's going to go away from the disciples to the Father. And he tells them that if they know him, then they know the Father as well. But Philip gets really confused about this. And he says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. But if what he was saying there wasn't true, if he wasn't fully God, then Philip wouldn't be seeing God. Philip would be seeing some prophet, perhaps, some mighty creature, perhaps, but not more than a creature. He wouldn't be seeing God and he, he wouldn't be directly encountering God. In fact, for none of us would there be an op- option, uh, an opportunity of ever encountering God himself. But more than that, the person who died on the cross would be a mere creature. And that is a significant problem because the problem of our sin is such that if a mere creature stood in our place before God and said, I will bear the guilt of fallen humanity, would that be enough? It wouldn't be enough. We need someone to stand in our place who is of such worth and value that his death will count for all of us. And that's why when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the person that died on the cross was God himself. The person that died on the cross was the Son of God himself. God himself bearing our sins on the cross. And that's why it's so important that Jesus Christ is fully God. And it's so important to know that when we encounter Jesus Christ, we encounter the one who reveals the true God to us. Because when people spoke to him, and the disciples get gripped by this later, especially in 1 John when you read it, the apostles just gripped by this realisation that his hands had handled the word of life. When we encounter Jesus Christ, we encounter the one who is God himself and who reveals God himself to us. And whereas in the past everybody had encountered God through prophets, encountered God perhaps even through angels or various different intermediaries, no one had encountered God directly like they had in Jesus Christ. And in these days of fulfillment, in these last days, as Hebrews says... We encounter God Himself in His Son. And if we ever harbored fears that God was a distant, cold, unfeeling deity, then instantly all of those fears are put to rest when we encounter Jesus Christ. Thomas Torrance was a Scottish theologian and chaplain during, I can't remember if it was the first or second world wars, he encountered a dying soldier during one of the wars. And the soldier said to him, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And as he was dying, that's what he wanted to know. Was the God that he was going to meet really like Jesus? And Thomas Torrance affirmed that yes he was going to meet the God who was exactly like Jesus. And later, as as Torrance develops these thoughts in his writings, he emphasises that there is no God behind Jesus. It's not like Jesus is just a front, and then there's somebody else behind Jesus that's different to that, that's, that's more stern, that's more malevolent, that's more unfeeling. No, when we encounter Jesus... We encounter God Himself. And that's why it's vitally important that we affirm that in Jesus Christ, we meet the one who is fully God. But as much as it's important to affirm that He's fully God, it's vital that we affirm that He is fully human as well. And that ought to give us great joy, that ought to cause us to worship. Because He is fully human, then He's able to enter into our experience. A lot of thought gets given these days to what it means to experience suffering. Diane Abbott, over the weekend, Labour politician, got into a lot of hot water because she talked about who could legitimately experience racism. And she said that black people were the only people that could really experience racism and a lot of people were deeply offended by that. She said that the Irish people uh, hadn't experienced racism. (laughs) No, I must say that I cannot lay claim to have experienced any kind of racism. And it would be unfair of me to ever suggest that I could ever fully understand what someone had went through that had experienced being the victim of racism. And isn't that true? There's some experiences in people's lives that we just cannot fully enter into simply because we, we haven't gone through them. Now, when it comes to God... Does God really understand what we go through? Of course, in some way, we can say that because God knows everything, then of course he understands. But does he really understand? Because unless you've gone through something, you can't say that you really know what it's like. But that's why it's so important to affirm that Jesus Christ was fully human, fully God, and fully human. Because there it means that God himself entered into our experiences knowing what it was like to laugh with friends around a meal, knowing what it was like to rejoice with people, knowing what it was like to grieve, knowing what it was like to lose a close friend, Lazarus, knowing what it was like probably to lose his father, since Joseph doesn't appear in the rest of the Gospel accounts. One assumes that he passed away. And knowing what it's like to be tempted, knowing what it's like to be hated, knowing what it's like to suffer, and knowing what it's like even to die. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, in chapter 4, verse 15, I've got it there in the slides, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, because we've got a high priest like that, go to him in every time of need. Because he knows what you're going through. Because he's experienced every aspect of human experience. Every aspect of human experience that we go through, he knows what it's like. But I mean, empathy only goes so far. If all we could say that Jesus understands our experiences, that wouldn't be enough. We need people to be able to not only share our feelings, but also do something to help us. And that's what the Lord Jesus does because in his humanity, his perfect humanity, he goes to the cross and represents us there before God. And as a man, he presents himself as a representative of humanity and makes himself accountable for the guilt of fallen humanity. And in his resurrection and ascension, He takes our humanity into the presence of God itself so that forevermore God is joined to humanity because Jesus Christ didn't cast off his humanity when he ascended back to the Father but remains both fully God and fully man. And that means that there is in the presence of God right now human being who represents us, who understands us, who speaks for us. And we know that that is our guarantee to be there one day as well because we know that through Jesus Christ we have a seat at the table, we have a place in the presence of God and as the Lord Jesus said he was going away to prepare a place for us so that where he is, there we may be also. And so, in short, unless the Lord Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, then he cannot help us. And our whole salvation hinges upon this person, who is both God and man, able to be everything that we need to us and this was why the early church was so careful to guard against error on this front and at the start of what i was going through there you're probably thinking this is tedious technical stuff but the reason why they were so careful about guarding each of those points wasn't because they just wanted to be pedantic and come up with all kinds of formulas but because once you drop the guardrails And once you stop affirming that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man in one person, then our salvation is no longer certain. And that's why it's so important. And so as Christians then, we worship our Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man, because there is no one like him and we need him for our salvation. So let's pray and give thanks and then we'll have some refreshments together. Almighty God, we thank you that that you have entered into our world in the person of your own dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you.